Hello and welcome to the WAMDA podcast. My name is Triska Hamid and I'm the editor at WAMDA. What is your purpose? What is the change you are trying to bring? What is the impact you would like to have? Now, these may sound like the sort of questions someone going through an existential crisis may ask, but they are also incredibly important questions to ask when establishing a company's mission. But how exactly can we measure impact? And what sort of purpose should startups in particular strive towards? In this episode, I spoke with Reem Khoury, co-founder of WISE, a Jordanian-based company which has developed an impact analytics software for organizations to aggregate their data and analyze it against impact frameworks like the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I should point out here that WAMDA is an investor in WISE after participating in the company's seed round in 2020. Hi Reem, welcome to this WAMDA podcast. Hi, it's an honor to be part of this. Let's talk about WISE, why you set it up and what exactly it is that you guys do. So uh, we set up WISE two and a half years ago, um, me and another two co-founders. Um, and it's really stemming from a gap we saw in the market. I've been working in the impact space for 15 years and we realized that to actually be able to design impactful projects and models, you need data. And uh, while there are a lot of software solutions for financial data and commercial data, there are very few solutions that enable organizations to capture the impact-related data and analyze it so that they can actually design more impactful solutions. And we thought it was extremely important to do this, uh, especially with the challenges that the world is facing from climate change to inequality to poverty elevation um, more than ever i think uh, companies and and governments and civil society are realizing that this is everyone's job and so everyone needs this kind of data everyone needs to understand what are the drivers uh, that affect change in the work that they do and so we started WISE two and a half years ago for that purpose. And what kind of companies do you work with and what sort of data are you collecting for them? So we're, when we started, I think that's um, uh, something that a lot of startups do. We actually put our software out there and we didn't target specific types of clients. And we wanted to see who would be interested. What was very obvious was the needs from foundations and and. and large development funds, but also, quite interestingly, governments are coming on board and really wanting to look at the impact of the initiatives that they're doing. Uh, And more and more corporations are starting to be interested in this. Less, interestingly enough, less on the CSR front, more on impact on their employees because they realize that one of the most, if not the most important stakeholder Uh, that they actually need to look at the impact that they have uh, are their employees. And so we're starting to see a movement happening there, uh, not as much as it should be. I think that also a lot of the um, social justice movements that are happening in the world, such as Black Lives Matter, the uh, Me Too movement, uh, people are looking at the importance of inclusion and diversity in your 
with your employees, but also uh, with your supply chain and also the outreach for customers, etc. So we're seeing a change, but I think we're still a long way and we still have a long way to go. So when you try and measure impacts, how do you go about doing that? So the very first uh, assumption that we had that was uh, completely uh, demystified, if I may say, was that people knew what they needed to measure. One of the biggest challenges in this sector is that there are no standards. It's, there's no standardized way of measuring impact. You have multiple standards, you have ESG, you have the SDGs, uh, you have the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI, on sustainability. And people actually need to measure their impact as per their own theory of change. And so the very first thing we do with a client is help them articulate their theory of change uh, or work with a consultant if they don't have a well-articulated theory of change or an impact thesis, if you want. Uh, once that's done, we uh, work together on choosing and identifying the metrics to actually measure if that change that they say they want to do is happening or not. We have on our platform 2,000 plus indicators, so we've also done quite a bit of research. Uh, sometimes we develop proxy metrics that allow them to align with the international standards but measure them differently. And then based on that, we do a data strategy. So we do a, a data gap analysis to see what data is available, what is not available. Uh, we help them build the tools to collect the data through our platform or automate the data collection process. And then they have an, the automated analysis uh, based on that data. We train them on the use of the platform and they have access to interactive dashboards. But we also conduct with them periodically a deep dive exercise on their data as part of an audit on how the integrity of the data and the quality of the data, but also to um, look at their data a little bit differently. Sometimes there are insights that can come up from the data that they're not able to see because they're only looking at specific metrics and they're not seeing these other correlations. What kind of impact are organizations and companies interested in making? So we're seeing in the Middle East, it's mostly social impact much less so than environmental impact. We're seeing very little interest in tracking environmental impact, although we all believe that they are very much interconnected. Economic impact is definitely, uh, economic and social impact is definitely what they've been focusing on a lot. I also think that it has to do with the challenges that the region is facing. So everyone is interested in job creation, uh, income mobility. Um, we're seeing more interest in gender equality, but I would still think that the top areas that are being focused on are income mobility and job creation, youth engagement to a degree, volunteerism and civic engagement less so, only if the organization is actually working on these topics. Uh, gender equality is something that is being looked at, but I think we need to look at it much deeper. And maybe the example I would give is that uh, if we look at gender equality just from a, I don't want to call it superficial, but kind of superficial point of view, it's, you know, I, I employ X percent women or I, you know, train X percent women and the, and the percentage looks great. Uh, but then if we go into more details, we'll see that there's pay gap. 
we'll see that uh, they don't get the same opportunities. So while you might be supporting 80% of the people that you're supporting are women, the kind of support and the quality of support that is provided to them is different than the support that's provided to men. And we're seeing that with the data. So part of the challenge is actually that we don't always deliver good news to clients. <laughs> besides the gender parity, what other surprises or insights have, have you come across? Very interestingly, we, we're working, we're focusing now on the microfinance industry. And very interestingly, when we started looking at data related to uh, the clients of the microfinance industry, that actually what the assumptions that people have on the variables that drive impact are not true, right? So we think that the more educated you are, the more likely you'll create jobs. Actually, data shows us it's the other way around. It also tells us that um, women have created more jobs than men, but men are taking larger loan sizes than uh, women. We're also, very interestingly, that most of the jobs that were created were in rural areas, not urban areas. And so a lot of the assumptions that we have that, you know, we cannot create jobs in the little villages versus the, it's, it's much easier to create the jobs in the cities or that, um, you know, the more educated you are, the more likely you are to create a job. Uh, actually, it's the other way around, right? Because the more educated you are, the more likely it is that you will get a job, not create a job and not create a job for others. And so there were very interesting insights on that front. We also saw that everyone that was at the lowest bracket of income uh, moved up one bracket in income after taking two loans. Uh, but it was a very specific type of program and the importance of non-financial services. So money is important, but also additional support um, for these beneficiaries is actually very important. Why do you think there is that disparity between what we expect and then what the data shows? I think a big part of it is because there's a lot of bias, right? I think that we've been uh, conditioned to think about things a certain way. And I think that it's because we don't use evidence and data to actually come up with conclusions. And, and this is where it becomes very interesting. Or when we use data, we use it as a snapshot. And so it could have been true at some point in time when you took a snapshot that that information was correct. But a year later, two years later, three years later, changes have happened. And if I'm still relying on that snapshot versus continuous analysis, then we're unable to see, we're unable to make use of the data. And then we continue to design initiatives and models that are not as impactful as they could be. So when you do present your findings to, to the clients, what has been their reaction and, and does it turn into real change? It's uh, uh, so far, yes, we've seen very interesting feedback from clients. A lot of them need support in further understanding the data and the variables. But almost everyone used the data to start a conversation at least. Uh, some use the data not just to start a conversation, but actually take action and they hired people to actually address it and put an action plan for it. Others have maybe started a conversation 
It also depends on who our client is. So sometimes the data that we're presenting is to someone who's funding a project, but they're not the implementer of the project. So, but they start the conversation with the implementing party to say, this is what the data is showing us. That was a, that was a good surprise. That was a happy surprise. No one said, I don't want to use the data or I'm just going to ignore what's been happening. Uh, but at the same time, I would say, has the change started to happen? We don't know yet, right? Because we've on, we're only two and a half years old. And so our oldest client has been there for two years and uh, they start the conversation. They're starting to uh, make decisions based on evidence. Uh, but the results of that change is yet to come. Why is it important for companies be they startups, large corporations, and um, non-governmental organizations to track their data? There are a lot of reasons why I think they should. One of the most interesting things that we're actually seeing with the clients that we work with is why are they tracking their data, the purpose of. And so if they're tracking the data purely for reporting, you're not gonna see much change because then it's a checklist. You're only reporting to tell the people that gave you the money or your investors or to use it for PR purposes, which is my problem with CSR. I think everyone should be responsible, it shouldn't be a choice, is that they're using it purely for reporting and to make themselves look good. Uh, where you actually see change is when they actually track the data because they wanna improve. And so, Impact-related data is not about reporting. Um, a byproduct of it is that you report on it, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is to be more efficient, is to actually get the most return on the dollar spent. Even if you're for-profit or not for-profit, you want the most return. If I can create 10,000 jobs with $100,000, why am I spending $100 million creating, you know, creating the same quality of jobs? And so I think it's about being more efficient. It's about being able to design better interventions. It's about being much more strategic in our approach. It allows and it enables, we've seen one of the best byproducts of tracking impact, we've seen new partnerships being formulated based on this and new relationships happening where some banks would look at microfinance banks as part of their pipeline or supply chain uh, versus just another sector. And so I think there are huge opportunities if they start to look at it a little bit differently. But the biggest difference is why are you tracking? If the purpose of tracking is reporting, you're not going to get what you need to be getting. If the purpose of tracking is understanding your operations, understanding the variables that affect impact, understanding your stakeholders, all of them, uh, then the return is exponentially bigger. You mentioned women, they take out smaller loans, create more jobs. Does the data show why that happens? Uh, in some cases, yes, uh, because they're the head of the household, right? So they're responsible. She's divorced or widowed or separated and she has kids and she needs to take care of them. In, in that case, you can tell very clearly. There was research that showed that actually economic independence for women led to in some in in one country there was it was a specific research case study led to a rise in number of divorce because she a lot of them were in abusive relationships and couldn't get out because they were not economically independent i think that by choice or by force is a separate story but 
women need to make ends meet and they need to take care of their uh, families. Uh, it's interesting because when we looked at the age group, men take loans at a younger age than women and women wait a little bit longer to take loans. And so you realize that it has to do with marital status, with the fact that her parents are no longer here and she needs to become independent, take care of herself. Or she got married, he wasn't great and she needed to take care of herself. Um, but we saw it with the age group, right? Because men start younger and women start at an older age. Um, but also women, when we compared the income level, the majority of the people that fall in the, into the lower income level were women. Also, I think much more difficulty finding, you know, going to traditional jobs and uh, especially with a lack of flexibility, maternity leaves, you know, flexible working hours, organizations not providing childcare. So the simple fact that women create more jobs when given some kind of loan yet we we are facing the largest gender gap in the world in the middle east does it therefore not make sense to empower women more uh, give them more opportunities we're talking about half the economy essentially so to involve women more in the economy would surely create more jobs 100 percent. and we're starting to see a movement there are a couple of really interesting organizations and funds shaping up. There is Amam Ventures, there's 17 Ventures. These are two VC funds that are actually focusing on, one is focusing on a, from a gender lens approach, the other one is focusing on the SDGs, the, the, the UN Developmental Goals with a focus on gender um, and economic empowerment. Um, we're also seeing organizations here in Dubai, like She's Arab, trying to uh, support and empower and, and amplify the voices of women uh, and, and their engagement in the economy. I think this is a collective effort that we all need to work on. The data is there to tell us all that the best investment you can make is an investment in women. And that data is global, right? And the data in the Middle East is only reinforcing that conclusion. What's funny is that the decision-making is still made by men in so many cases, but we're starting to see, I think, a shift happening, uh, but nowhere near enough. But why, why is there that sort of the glass ceiling? We, the data's all there, it's backed up all around the world, and yet the situation still has not improved. Women has improved a little bit. I think it has to do with the fact that we don't have women in, in governments, right? Like we at that level of decision making to say, you know, everyone's equal. I think that it would change if you have a woman prime minister or, or a woman president in one of the Arab countries. I think you'll, I hope we'll see a bigger change, more progressive uh, men would come with also uh, they're they're pushing that agenda but I do think I think maybe some people would argue that there's a cultural issue I think it's a mindset right and I think that if uh, if we start looking at every individual as a human being with their rights and with their with the role that they can play but also change the laws right that allows so culturally I grew up in a family that believes everyone is equal but I can still not give nationality to my child if I marry in a, a foreigner, yeah. right? And so even if I believe I can do anything, I, the law is telling me I cannot do anything. And so I think there are a lot of changes that need to happen for us to see progress the way we want to see it. 
I do believe, though, that there is a global movement towards changing that. I think that uh, it's, it's ridiculous that we still have pay gap. Uh, it's ridiculous that in the U.S. women don't have maternity leave. Uh, I think that COVID taught us how much harder it is for women to be uh, working from home, uh, the importance of having flexible work environments and working hours. I think it will happen and I think it will start happening faster, uh, but we need to keep having those conversations. On the topic of culture, let's talk about the culture of companies and uh, in particular with, with startups. We're seeing more women-led venture funds, um, a lot more focus in that regard and we're seeing more female founders but in terms of the wider culture of, of startups there are, there are issues and plenty of issues so i think that we're missing out on a huge opportunity with the startup world which are the companies of the future to talk about these issues from day one i think there are a lot of unbelievable amount of programs and boot camps about how to create the business model, how to price, how to recruit talent. But there isn't a conversation about how to build an ethical company with the right values, with the right culture that respects diversity, that is inclusive, that is uh, that promotes gender equality. Um, and I would blame a lot of different players on that. I think funders and VC funds can have a bigger say on that and can demand it as part of and should be part of their due diligence. I think the incubators and the accelerators uh, that are training these startups should have a module on governance and ethics and equality and, and, and diversity and inclusion. I think that it should be uh, mandatory as part of the, just like you have to issue your financial reports, I think it should be mandatory to actually report on how you're performing on these things. Do any of your investor clients track this kind of data? Are they interested in, in seeing what, what the culture is like and what kind of impact it's having? Uh, only after we tell them. Okay. Yeah, after we tell them, you should be looking at this and, and, and they start to look at it. Uh, but I think that there is room for much more to be done. I think there's also something about the essence of a startup. You're starting, you need to focus on the right things and you say, I'm going to worry about my HR policy later and I'm going to worry about an anti-harassment policy later. I just need to first have a prototype and I first need to have a proof of concept. The problem with that is that we tend to think that they're mutually exclusive, right? And I don't think that setting the right culture and the right values is something that you only do later. It's about who you are as an entrepreneur and what kind of company you want to build. Maybe part of that is that mindset that I'm building the company to exit it that makes them forget about or postpone thinking about these things, which I completely disagree with because it's one of the biggest risk areas. I mean, if you look at all the large corporations or the large startups and the unicorns, that did very well and then had a huge scandal that actually affected them, the scandal almost always was related to culture, governance, lack of equality, lack of a harassment policy or having a harassment policy but it's not incorporated or not having a grievance mechanism or turning a blind eye to what's happening. And so I think that if anything, investors and founders should look at this as 
the most basic of practices they need to be doing, not just for the greater good, but also from a risk management point of view, because you won't be able to sell your company if you have a harassment lawsuit. It will affect your valuation. I mean, you might be able to sell it, but... Besides the risk management, why is it so important to have these kind of mechanisms in place from the very beginning to create that culture where you don't end up with harassment lawsuits? So many reasons. I would start by, to me, it's very much about who you are and it's about the ethics and the values, but it's also about who do you want to attract. Everyone knows that as a startup, you cannot build a company without talent. And so if you don't have the right culture and if you have a culture that enables people to bully each other or to harass each other, you're not going to attract the best talent and you're not going to be able to retain the best talent. And I think that a lot of organizations tend to forget that their employees are the number one stakeholder. They think the shareholders are number one or the clients are number one or they're both equal and employees, employees come later. I think it's the other way around. I think employees come first because without them, you will not be able to serve any other stakeholders. That's a complete kind of... Mindset shift, mindset shift entirely. I actually, there is a movement, it's just starting, that is trying to come up with an alternative accounting solution, right? Because when we talk about impact, people think about it as a nice to have versus a must have. Um, and there is a movement happening saying, you know, things will not change unless we also change the way we do business. And what they're trying to come up with is an accounting system where you don't look at human capital as a cost and you actually put them as an asset in even in the way you look at your profit and loss and the way you look at your operations and your balance, uh, your, your balance sheet. So I think that there is a movement, it's very early on, but there is a movement to start looking at things differently. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't think about sales and you don't worry about scale and you don't worry about uh, delivering on your promise to your customers, uh, but it without your people, all of the rest won't happen. And so, and we always think that if you think about your employees, it's about how just how much you pay them, mm-hmm. right? But then all of the research is saying you, it's not just about the money. It's about the right environment. It's about feeling heard. It's about feeling safe. It's about being able to have conversations. It's about knowing that their opinion matters. Uh, it's about healthcare and uh, equal rights. It's about fairness and a meritocracy. It's much more than just how much. It's about stock options, right? Because you're creating something from scratch. Um, and I think that this is... These are all very important things to be uh, to be thinking. Transparency, disclosure, all of these are very, very important things to be talking about. It is a mindset shift. I remember when at the very early stages of starting the company, at some point we had to worry about cash flow. And so I told all of the employees that we have a cash flow problem, but this is how we're dealing with it. And someone said to me, why are you saying this? You know, why, why are you telling the, the, even the junior employees in the company about this? And my reaction was, why not? I mean, we're all part of this together. If we're having, I share the good news, I need to share also the challenges, uh, and we need to keep our eye on the ball and where we want to go. Uh, We have weekly meetings where every single person in the company, 
including the QA team and the developers, and they get an update on the strategy on who we closed and who we didn't close and uh, what's happening with clients and what strategic alliances we did. And um, because it's very important for everyone to be aligned on where the company is going, especially in the early days. That's a lot easier for a small company to do. How would a larger company tackle something like this? So larger, so it's it's interesting because we just did work with a very large group and their number one challenge was internal communication. And we saw that in, in the impact on employee satisfaction, employee engagement, uh, and, and it was very obvious that internal communication was the biggest challenge. I think there's so many different tools today, but I also think it's about the content of the communication and the mode of communication. You know, doing a meeting or a town hall meeting where one person is speaking and there are 500 people that are not able to interact is not going to get you the same result as intranets and videos and I think it's very important to start thinking about communication more from a storytelling point of view. And, and so what's the story of the company today and having a two-way communication, right? So I think that for larger corporations, one of the issues happen is it's a one-way communication and at some point it stops at you know middle management or, or right below and it doesn't go all the way down. I think it's different modes. Uh, I think technology plays a huge role in how organizations can communicate with each other. Um, there are some interesting, so that organization actually ended up, they started thinking about videos, they started sending WhatsApp messages to the teams, they actually opened, created workshops periodical with, with the different teams, not just at the management level, to also receive additional feedback. And I think that we'll see more and more people focusing on the importance of open communications within an organization, but they will have to be much more creative. Where do you draw the line? We talk about work and, you know, with the work-life balance. Uh, with COVID, that all got meshed together. How much responsibility does a company need to take for their employees in terms of their well-being, their their mental state? We did very interesting research. Two months post-COVID, we asked startups to tell us the biggest challenges that they're facing with COVID, with the pandemic. And everyone was worried about cash, but the biggest challenge, the number one challenge that, a lot, that most of them said they're facing is the fact that they need to innovate, to adapt, to pivot, to be able to go through this, uh, th- these crazy changes that are happening. And a couple of months later, we did an employee well-being survey. And the majority of employees said they had extreme anxiety that, uh, you know, when they ranked their mental health and their anxiety, it was something that actually stopped them from being able to be as productive as they wanted to be. Uh, We saw more women suffering than men because they were responsible for many more things at home. Um, we saw a lot of worry and anxiety around financial security, even if their businesses actually never let go of anyone or never fired anyone. And what's very interesting is that companies can come in and say, it's not our problem. Mental health is not our problem. But it is because if your biggest challenge is to innovate and it's your people that will allow you to innovate and they are facing so much insecurity and challenges and anxiety, then you're not going to make it. I don't think there's a line. I don't believe in a line. 
I think that we are, as organizations, everything is interconnected. And so I do believe that the way we do business is connected to the global challenges that we're seeing in the world. The way we, uh, our employees feel is connected to our ability as organizations to be resilient and innovative and grow and scale. And so if a company keeps thinking that its only purpose is just to make money and that its relationship or its social contract with the employee is purely based on an exchange of, you know, I'm buying hours of your time for you to deliver a specific service, we will not see change. And we're seeing that. So, so you know, companies were called out on the way they behaved uh, during the Me Too movement, during Black Lives Matter. You cannot come in and say, yes, I support this cause because it's trendy. And then you have a supply chain that doesn't have people of color or you don't have employees. You know, people of color are actually your employees, but not at the management, not at the board level. You cannot say, yes, I support women, but you don't have a woman board member and you don't have women in your management team and you don't have women employees. That line is, is not there. You cannot say, yes, I believe that climate change is real and we need to fight it. And you don't have an environmental policy or you still don't even think about your carbon footprint and you don't even think about how you can take action to lower it. Do you think companies in the region have woken up to the fact that people demand this kind of social justice? I think so and I think so we're in the region I'm Palestinian and we're we're all seeing what's happening in Palestine and we're all seeing a lot of employees asking their organizations to take a step on social justice issues. There was very interesting research that came out where millennials were asked to answer a question about who do they hold responsible for the quality of life. And the poll showed that millennials and the younger generation holds both private companies and governments equally responsible for their quality of life. Equally responsible. The government is not the only one, I mean, the bigger polluters are the private sector. So the bigger, the, you know, so this is not something, this is not a, uh, an inequality or a challenge that has been created by a leader. This is about society as a whole behaving a certain way and not wanting to change the, the way they do business. And there is more and more pressure from shareholders and from citizens and individuals saying, actually, these things matter. And I think companies will have to because this new generation will not work for you if you don't take those actions, if you don't support uh, social justice movements, if you don't support equality. You will not be able to recruit these people. We, we keep talking about millennials as the young generation, but actually they're in their mid-30s and, and yeah. 40s now. So it's uh, the, I guess it's a huge generational shift that's yes. happened. I think, I think it's a huge generational shift. I think that there was a sign in, in the protest, in, in one of the protests for Palestine in D.C., and you said, you know, you, you're stuck with the wrong generation. Like you can't keep doing what you're doing with this generation. I think they have a much stronger sense of justice and social movements. I think there's also a higher level of awareness. I think social media played a role. I think that um, I, I was reading a very interesting article about the number of subscribers to the New York Times versus the number of videos that were watched on TikTok on the topic of Palestine, right? And so who's relevant, whose voices are heard. 
I think we're starting to have a shift in different communication modes. I think social media and technology has allowed for people to have much more diversity in what they're seeing. I still think that the algorithms are limiting the amount of diversity we get to see. Having said that, I think that while that change happened, organizational structures did not change yet. So you have a trend of people communicating differently, getting their information differently, getting data differently, but companies still looking at the way they communicate and the way they use data the old way. And so I think this is where we're going to start seeing shifts of, I think organizational structures are going to look different. I think with COVID, uh, talent and the way you interact with talent is going to look different. Uh, I think, you know, workspaces are going to look different. And I think that equality and social justice is at the forefront of the agenda that every single organization needs to be thinking about and climate change. Things are slowly starting to go back to normal. So there are, you know, managers are telling people to come back into the offices and there's a risk of things going back to exactly how they were before. How do you enact this sort of change where people don't go back to their comfort zones and and face, you know, look at the data, face the reality and enact that kind of change. You know, there's always the carrot and the stick, right? And sometimes the data appears like a stick, but I also try with a lot of the organizations and a lot of the research, we're actually highlighting the carrot. It's not, change is difficult uh, and people, a lot of people resist change, and, and especially the bigger, older organizations. Uh, but when you show the opportunity, I think it makes a very compelling value proposition. So if I go and do my sales pitch and I say, look, I've done an analysis on organizations, and I made them realize that 70% of their employees think that this environment is toxic, not likely that they will buy my product, right? But if I say the data that we analyzed allowed them to have insights and make decisions that enabled them to get $20 million in funding, then they get to see, uh, they actually see the value proposition differently. I'm a believer in the carrot more than the stick. Having said that, we're very, very strict on not embellishing the evidence. And so we'll say you have a problem here. The data shows that you have a real problem here, but these are actions that can be taken. These are things that matter. And so that's why we also created an alliance network with organizations, with consultants, with advisors that would help these organizations transform and take action based on that data. The purpose is not to tell someone you're terrible. The purpose is to tell someone, this is the diagnostic, this is where the problem is, but this is how you can actually become better and everyone being happier or creating value for every single stakeholder, not just for one. And that's where we see the difference. Yeah, so carrot. (laughs) Thanks to Reem and thanks to you for listening. You can listen to all of our podcasts on wonder.com or through your podcast provider.